You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 4, let's begin in verse 1, and we'll read and then come back. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. When they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said to him, If you be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this power will I give you, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If you therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall you serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you be the Son of God, cast yourself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said to him, It is said, You shall not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. So here we have uh, an important passage here uh, for a number of reasons. One is, again, in the scene, we see Jesus in the wilderness, tempted these 40 days, and he's alone. So for this to come to us, again, at some point, Jesus must have come to his disciples and sat down and said, I have something to tell you. And he must have then reiterated and disclosed to them what happened during this time. So it's important for anyone who is going to follow Jesus to recognize these things. He wanted us to know this and to see this and be able to take things from this specific scenario that happened. Uh, He didn't have to have shared these things. So there has to be things here for us. Uh, and I and I think part of it is certainly he he wants us to take hope. Here we have the picture of a man overcoming Satan in these drastic temptations. So uh, very important right off the bat. Um, the second thing I think that's important to see is this. Again, verse one, it gives us a little background, saying Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan his baptism. And was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So here we see Christ coming from his baptism, full of the Holy Spirit, uh, entering into his father's public ministry for his life. And immediately here he is, of course, driven into the wilderness and tempted of Satan. So right off the bat, I think, again, we should take take heart, because I think a lot of times we think if we're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit, these are the scenarios we escape, right? <laughs> like, if I'm filled with the Spirit, I don't have to put temptation in 40 days together, right? Or Satan in my immediate proximity. But the reality is, it is when you are a person, a man or a woman filled with the Spirit, that you are now an active target of the enemy, you are going to come into contact with his interests, and there's going to be conflict. So I do think it's important just to be reminded again to remember, all right, Lord, when I begin to step out into the direction you would have for my life, when I begin to make good decisions, when I begin to move forward in a way that God would have me to move forward, it should not be surprising if I find resistance there. Uh, Otherwise, we could get very discouraged, right? Lord, I had this tough decision. I finally made it for you. I knew I needed to do it. And now, all of a sudden, look at what's happened here. How come these things are happening? And here we find Christ in that very situation, filled with the Spirit, moving in the direction God would have him to, and immediately in conflict with Satan. Uh, And this certainly repeated in his followers. Here he is there. 
And I think we are supposed to take heart in these things, right? If you're particularly a person that's here tonight and you, earth feels like a wilderness to you, right? You're embattled. You feel pressed. You felt like it's been a decent amount of time that you've been going through this or you're just literally in the heat of temptation, whether that temptation uh, might seem little to you, like losing your temper, or whether that temptation is something that you know is more drastic and literally is going to define some of the way your life is going to work out, right? These things are for us. And even if that's not us at this direct moment, it will be us soon if the Lord would tarry, right? We're going to move through these scenarios in our life. Many of you are nodding your heads because you've already come and gone and this has been your history, right? So here again, Christ putting these things before us on purpose. I want to take hope before we hop in. We're going to look at Satan and some of what he does. Um, But I think it's important before we get even into any of that, we can just simply see man in his own nature is ripe for the devil. That could be easily proved out by watching the news. But man, again, Christ calls himself the son of man so often. Man, filled with the spirit, is more than capable of dealing with Satan and all the hell has to offer. The Christian, in the end, has not a single thing to fear in this life. Not because of their own strength, but because of his strength. Right? Because we are no longer basing our abilities on our own nature, but what God offers us in Christ Jesus. Our victor has already moved through all this in perfection, and he now offers us the same spirit and the same strength. Right? That there is not a single scenario that any Christian has to worry about their ability to continue to honor and please God. Christians all over the world and all through history has survived in the worst possible conditions, just like this scenario. The first man, Adam, came and all the conditions were perfect and he failed, right? But here we have the second man come in the worst of conditions, in a wilderness, with wild beasts, all by himself, but filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prevails. So important for us to take hope in these things that here is like the worst case scenario and yet Christ is going to come through this victorious. And that is what is offered to us. Now, uh, again, before we move into it, I want to look at our enemy here a little bit. Uh, I think it's important to recognize his temptations here are strategic attempts to derail the plan of God. They're not just to get Jesus to eat bread. You recognize that? What he's doing here is something bigger than just trying to tempt him into some type of, of sinful act. He knows the consequences will, will there be repercussions to that. They would move out down the lines. Uh, and I think that's important to notice. Twice you'll notice he says, if you be the son of God. And the sense is, since you are. He was there. He heard, I'm sure, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And here now, after his baptism, Christ is moving into the scenario, tempted of the enemy, and here he's coming with his shots to tempt him. And it isn't, his point isn't just to tempt him. His point is when he knows if he gets this victory through temptation, the repercussions of that will be huge. Does that make sense? And I think that's important for us to recognize because what's at stake when you and I are tempted is more than just our momentary well-being. Right? It's important to remember, there are two plans working in this world. Right? We can sometimes forget that. I believe it's Watchman Nee says, even when we pray, he says, we pray to God for ourselves or other people, but he said, we often forget that we're also praying against Satan. Right? There's another side to this whole thing. We've heard very often it said, God has a plan for your life, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, we know these things. God has a plan for your life. That's true. Satan has a plan for your life. We don't hear that quite as much. But he does. And there's a strategic attempt on his through temptation, not just to get us to sin, but he understands that sin will lead to further things. Very often, we don't see the whole plan. We don't know how those things are going to work out, but he knows there's bigger consequences there. He's, there's intelligence behind this. Remember, Satan is a being. He's a being. He's a, he's a thinking being. 
He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. But there's intelligence behind what it is that he's doing. Right? If in Philadelphia there randomly kept appearing lions places attacking people, we wouldn't in the end think, we have an infestation here. At some point, we'd go, there is an intelligence releasing lions into our city. This is weird, right? There's something behind this that is causing this bad thing to happen here, right? And there's some, the scarier thing is why? What is the big plan? What is the consequences behind all these things, right? Here, when temptation comes, and again, now how that will apply to our life, when temptation comes to our life, we have to recognize there is a bigger plan here. It isn't just to get me to smoke some dope on the corner or something, right? There's a bigger plan that's being moved towards. It's not just this one little moment of me losing my temper. There's bigger consequences down the line. That's why Satan's doing this. He doesn't have some great victory just if we lose our temper. There's something else happening, just like there was here in this scenario, because Satan is intelligent. He has thoughts behind what he's doing. It's not random. It's not just out there for kicks. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew what the consequences of that would be. When he came to Christ and when he tempted him, he knew who it was, and he knew where it would be going. Um, A pretty famous journalist named Malcolm Muggridge uh, was an unsaved guy, just totally living in sin, became saved, uh, something of a Christian apologist. Um, He said this, from his own personal perspective, I think he sums it up pretty well. I see two forces struggling for mastery in each individual soul, in mine and in all men's, in each collectively throughout our earth and throughout the immeasurable universe. One is of darkness and one is of light. One wants to drag us down into the dark trough to rut and gorge there. The other to raise us up into the blue sky beyond appetite where love is all embracing, all encompassing, and the dark confusion of life sorts itself out like an orderly smiling countryside suddenly glimpsed from a high hill as the mists disperse in the sun's light and warmth. One is the devil and the other is God. I have known both and I believe in both. Right? Important, important that we recognize when we feel the press of temptation, it's not just something light happening. Does it make sense? There are bigger things behind what is going on. And Christ was aware of that. Now, lest we get super afraid, like it's weird to think of alien intelligences out there trying to work in our lives, bigger plans than we're aware of, right? If you really start to think of it, it's kind of weird. Um, Charles Finney, a journalist, once said, you believe in a personal devil? Said to Charles Finney, you believe like that he, he's real? And Charles Finney said, try opposing him for a while and you will too, right? The point is, it's, it's out there. To the world, it seems weird. And even if you really sit down and think of it, it it can seem weird to us because it's not a normal part of our thought process. The encouraging uh, part about it, I think, is this. Satan is intelligent, he's wise, he's shrewd, maybe not even wise in the biblical sense. More shrewd is the way he's pictured in the scripture. He has wiles, he has deceits, he has tactics. But a simple reading of the Bible will tell you and I that he doesn't seem quite capable of telling when God's deliverances are going to come, right? That's the encouraging fact. He might be shrewd, and he might have his plans, and he might be trying to work his scenarios, but he's got to just be like, man, when David kills Goliath, right? <laughs> or when the walls of Jericho just... He, he doesn't seem always quite capable of noticing when God's going to make things happen. And here, in this scene again, It is important to recognize what he's doing, what he's bringing about. But his ability, right, to anticipate those deliverances that God wants to bring about, he's not all-knowing, right? Again, our dad's bigger than their dad. So important for us to recognize, though, there's a reality on either side here. There are two big plans coming into conflict. This is the center. Christ is the center of what God is ever going to do on the face of the earth. And Satan is about to come at that, right? Big moment. It's a big moment. Now, uh, let's trace through these again. 
I'll just read through them again. Verse 2, being 40 days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and afterwards when they were ended, he hungered. You can imagine, obviously, fasting for so long, weakened his body, needing to eat. The devil comes to him and says, If you be the Son of God, or since you are, command this stone that it may be, that it may be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Right? Trying to get Christ to fulfill that immediate need. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. And the context in Deuteronomy is God teaching the people to trust in him. He says, I called you out of Egypt. I made you to know hunger. And he says, and I fed you manna that you didn't even know about. Right? Food that you never even knew existed. So that you would learn that you rest on every word of God, right? Our provision in the end is not what we can collect to ourselves or fulfill our bodily needs with. We literally are dependent upon God's every word. He is the indispensable need that we have. Christ, obviously, his trust in his Father more than what the enemy can tempt them to here. Verse 5, devil taking him up to the high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, a moment of time, the devil said to him, All this power will I give you, and the glory of them that is delivered unto me, and whomsoever I will, I will give it. If thou for will worship me, all shall be thine. Jesus answered and said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall you serve. Again, a quote from Deuteronomy. The context in Deuteronomy, again, is Christ, or excuse me, God leading the people into Egypt, and him, or excuse me, from Egypt into the promised land, and him saying, when you get there, don't forget me. <laughs> don't let all the blessings, once they come to your life, cause you to forget me and cause you to turn and serve other gods and stop fearing me. You need to worship me, right? And here, Satan offering him the kingdoms of the world. You could get them an easy way. No cross here in this situation. And certainly, Jesus Christ, not forgetting his father, understanding where his worship and where his service is alone, responds with the word, overcomes that temptation. Verse 9, he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, said to him, since you be the son of God, cast yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up, lest at any time you dash your foot against the stone. A quote from Psalm 91, although he misquotes it. We will get back to that. Jesus answering said to him, it is said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Deuteronomy again, quoting from there. Again, bringing the word in the situation. At this point, the devil flees and the temptation uh, is over for a time. <laughs> Satan calling. Now, <laughs> don't answer, don't answer, don't answer. So, uh, what I, how I want to look at this um, a little bit different. I'd like to pick out. There, there's so many levels here. Obviously, you could do you could do a ton here. Uh, I want to pick out the the temptations themselves and the levels they come to us on, because uh, I think they're important. And I think the Bible says we should not be ignorant of the devil's strategies. We should we should be aware of these things. Uh, and first, most commentators, these three temptations, they come to us in generally three ways. And most commentators, when they go through this section, they pick this out. Many of you might be familiar with this. But they pick out the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, right? The lust of the flesh, the eating of the bread, the lust of the eyes, the seeing of the kingdoms, the pride of life, the casting himself off the temple. John chapter 2 Verses 15 through 17 tell us, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. Right? That generally, temptation comes to us, through these means. Again, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, it says they see the fruit, they see it's good to eat, and they know it is desirable to make one wise, right? The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, all the way back there, Satan working again, these three angles. And generally, through our human nature, this is how temptation comes to us. 
you can work those out in very simple ways. The point I want to make is simply this. Most of the warfare and the temptation you will fight in your life comes to us on very natural means. Does that make sense, right? We don't think about that very often. There is such thing, when we think of warfare, we think of, right, battling Satan, we think of like supernatural things. And there are supernatural things that happen. We have had people here in the church, weird things happening in their homes. We have people that literally face situations where, you know, dark things at night, uh, dreams, people around the world, demon possession. There, there are supernatural things that happen, but those things are generally the exception and not the rule. Most of us, when we battle, when we fight, when we're being tempted, when a conflict between God's plan right, and Satan's plan comes to our lives, it comes through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's the most natural things we face. We're not, we're not getting drugged by a horde of demons in to see a movie we don't want to watch, right? That's not what's happening. We're not like, I don't want to see it. Don't hold my eyes open. That doesn't happen. You understand? Right? What happens is we have the lust of the eyes. We want to see that thing. (laughs) It's not coming through supernatural means. It's coming through totally natural means. We want that thing, right? We want to express ourselves in that prideful way. The point is, these things... Uh, And this battle comes to us on an everyday, regular basis. But I think the key is we don't think of it that way. I don't think it's warfare when I want to watch something I shouldn't watch or listen listen to something I shouldn't listen to or act in some prideful way. But it is. This is the way the temptation is coming to you. And again, remember, it's not just a temptation to get you to commit an act. There's something bigger behind that. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's not here to win little victories. He has a plan, again. There is intelligence. There is thought. And when the enemy comes, he comes along these lines, and it's much bigger than just the little thing that might even be happening at that moment. Sin, our lust, our pride, we should see those things more clearly and soberly than we really do. Frankly, I don't think we can ever take sin too seriously, nor the love of God. If the cross would tell us something, it should probably tell us that. And we should see those things much more soberly. Uh, I, there was an article written by John Piper on, you know, a movie just... Some filth, the classic kind of filth that's out there, right? Now, just remember the caption. It said, when will I pluck out my eye if not now, right? (laughs) What a gray heading, right? (laughs) When will I pluck out my eye if not now, right? Because we just assume like, yeah, you know, it doesn't seem to be making that much of a difference. Do we really know? Are we thinking in terms of the kingdom of God? Are we just thinking in terms of our own momentary life? Is that all our life is tied to? Do you not think that your life can be tied to something much bigger than that? Literally the salvation of other souls? Right? Here, Satan brings these things to Christ. He, he doesn't just show up, right, and supernaturally box him. Or, or just throw in, you know, some you know, some weird boogeyman thing to scare Jesus, right? That's, just, that's, just, that's not going to work on Jesus. But he does come through these natural means. And he continues to do that in our lives. And I think it's very important that we recognize, all right, Lord, when I feel this pull, the lust of my flesh, when I feel this pull, the lust of my eyes, when I feel this pull, this pride of life, there's something bigger happening here. It's not just me joking around. There's your plan, and there's another person's plan. And if I fail here, it could have real consequences, right? Important to recognize. Christ could recognize those things and overcome them. 
The second thing I think we see here is these three temptations are extended then on a larger scale to his body, the church. And what I mean by that is this. Christ, of course, was enacting God's plan on earth. And he was stepping into his father's will. He knew exactly what his mission was. He only did those things. He had received the commandment from his father before the foundation of the world. And he said, I'm here to fulfill that. But Christ has ascended. Right? He's in heaven, and he currently works out his will through the church on earth. He's given us his spirit. He is the head of the church, but it's his body that he uses to work out his plan and his will on the earth. Uh, and the context there is just as Satan came and used these temptations to tempt Christ to ruin God's mission there, he still today continues then, because his plan is to ruin what God is doing, right? He still today uses those things to uh, foil the efforts of the body of Christ on earth, right? He is our head. He is still working. And Satan, he's not in heaven trying to tempt Jesus now. He is working on the body of Christ, the church. And these, you can see in that, these three temptations are still extended to the body of Christ, the church. If you allow me to elaborate on that, what I mean by that is this. In the temptation with the bread, right? That lust of the flesh. So Satan tempts his body to make Jesus' mission one of abolishing hunger, establishing healthy diet choices, getting rid of GMOs, and calming overpopulation fears, right? Here we find men bowing to a Christ of the bread Lord who extends his divine power to eternally multiply bread and fishes to fill humans' bodily lusts and needs. Is that his mission? Is that his direct purpose? Right? With the world, the kingdoms of the world, here we see Saint, Satan tempting the body of Christ to make Jesus' mission one of kingdom reclamation. Christ becomes the chief promoter of candidates. And even where necessary, he becomes the general of their warfare upon other men. Hasn't that happened in the history of the church? Where Christ becomes the one that they extend their warfare behind. Hence men bow to a Christ who extends his divine power to establish an earthly kingdom. Where all basically good and sincere people, they have happy, prosperous, safe lives in a super welfare state utopia. Where they never need anything again, not even heaven. Right? Caesar usurps God. The third one, he tempts the body to believe that Jesus' mission can only be accomplished by achieving celebrity status and attracting attention the world's way. Hence, men cheer for him as the true Jesus Christ superstar the world has always been looking for, proving his deity by taking as many selfies with other famous actors and athletes as he possibly can, right? He no longer needs to win men through the cross. Now he can wow them into eternal security through his glitz and glam. Sad. You'll catch some of my sarcasm there. <laughs> but it's real, isn't it? It's sad, but it's real. You see, in all these temptations, there's, there's an essence of principle and of timing. It's not that those things are horrible. It's not horrible to try to help people, right? Or to give them physical needs. It's not horrible to try to have good things happen in your country or through politics. It's not hard. But in the end, those things aren't his mission. You understand? They're not his mission. That's not exactly what he's there to do. And Christ was tempted in all points like as we are. Therefore, he was tempted to take shortcuts, to indulge self, to touch the glory. These are all good things. And Christ would possess all of these good things in time. His body would get what it needed. He would be king of the kingdoms of the world. And he will be. And he'll have the name that's above every name. And all the recognition and all the glory will be his. But he would not accept these things at the price of disobedience. He would not accept these good things for his flesh or even good things for the kingdom, the world, or even good feelings illicitly. Everything is beautiful in its time. 
And again, Satan's temptation here, we have to understand, it's not just the act. It's not just the sinful act of eating the bread. There's a principle behind those things that is greater, that Christ recognized here. And I think even so, right, we see these things, even so after 2,000 years, what Christ so resolutely and directly refuses here in each of these temptations people who would call themselves by his name, like gladly accept on his behalf. And Satan's fine with that. We want to feed people's bellies and let them go to hell? I'm fine with that. Right? We want to set up a kingdom where people can be safe and have a good time, but they end up going to hell? I'm fine with that. Right? We keep the cross out of these scenarios. Christ is a cool dude that people like. He's fine with that. And you know what the sad thing is? What about our lives individually? Because the church is just a bunch of people, right? It's not Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia. It's a group of people. What about our lives individually? We should think of these things very seriously. It takes wisdom and discretion to be able to know when the proper timing is for things. When it would be a wrong timing to do something. When it would be the right timing to do something. Jesus, done, he did plenty of good things, but he didn't do a single thing his father didn't ask him to do. Right? Healing people is fine, and sometimes he healed people, but sometimes he didn't. Serving God is not just doing things that we think are good things. Serving God is doing the thing that God wants us to do. That's very different. And here, the body of Christ tempted the world over to repeat these same temptations and to surrender the mission of Christ in many different ways. And frankly, when we see this, I think it's important. When we see this, we should recognize it's not that these people are Satan. It's that there is an influence there, right? There is an enemy. And he is deceiving people. And he's deceiving the body of Christ because he wants to destroy the plan of God. He knows the repercussions of those things. He deceives church leaders. He deceives pastors. He deceives people into doing things that he knows might not look that bad, but they're really a derailment from where God would go in that scenario. And thus, these same temptations we see playing out on both an individual and a collective level before the body of Christ. And it's important we recognize those, and frankly, we should begin to pray against them when we see them. And that people's eyes would be open to those things, right? Because the church is the church. We believe in the communion of the saints. We sang that, right? And we should be concerned when we see a satanic influence in people's lives, right? Christ refusing those things, but his church at times accepting those things that he himself had refused. Now, on another level, I think we see these temptations then as representative of three realms, and we'll see this pretty clearly. The first one, obviously with the bread, this is the personal realm, right? This is Christ himself, his literal Hungers, his literal desires, his literal physical frame wanting these things, right? This temptation is a very personal one. And those personal temptations, I think, come most often to us simply along the lines of selfishness. The self-life is the problem that you and I face that's the most deep and pervasive. Wherever you go, you will be there. That's like a really deep statement, I know. But no change in geography is going to solve a flaw in character. You follow me? <laughs> right? That's the problem. The problem is what Solomon calls it. He says, every man must know the plague of his own heart. We got an issue, people. <laughs> right? We got issues. And the issue is me. That's my biggest problem in life. Me. Right? It's not my circumstances. It's not my scenarios. It's if I was given over to Christ the way I should be, I wouldn't have to fear any of those circumstances or scenarios. Just as Christ is representing here. And the problem is uh, we allow then those desires, our own desires, the things that we want, to rule our relationship and our trust with God as opposed to... Um, you know, our personal relationship 
with him. Christ is not going to give in to the bread because he knows again and he trusts his father. His father will provide for him. He fully trusts his father to provide for him everything he needs exactly when he needs it. And he will surrender all his desires to his father and he will not allow them to drive him or his trust in his father. He knows man doesn't live by bread alone, by the fulfillment of those immediately those like pressing bodily needs or desires, right? Now the world is the exact opposite. We know that. Sprite, right? Thirsty, why wait? Snickers, right? Hungry, eat a Snickers, right? This is like this is like every single world, you know, basically message that's thrown out there. You have one life, you gotta live it up. This is your one chance, right? Every cheesy like movie, you know, chick flick movie. We just have tonight, let's just live it, right? This is all we got. That's, and in some senses, that is all the world has. So that's why they have to think that way. But as a Christian, this is not all we have. In fact, this is the smallest part of what we have, and eternity is what we have. So in this scenario, though, it is very hard, right, to... Uh, to not allow those normal everyday desires and the things that we want and our own hopes and our own dreams to be the thing that drives our relationship with the Lord. And the reality is whatever we might want or desire, its greater counterpart will be found in the Lord anyway. He is the only indispensable thing. God is a substitute for everything. Nothing is a substitute for him. Christ is very well aware of that. And that's why I think our fellowship with him on a personal level, right, that when those personal temptations come, because things that you would desire would be different than things that I would desire, right? Going to the opera might tempt some of you. It's never going to tempt me, right? You understand? (laughs) One thing about temptation is that it's actually tempting, right? That's like, I always tell my kids, look, if some like random dude at the mall with like a peg leg and a patch, girls, tries to ask you out, that's not temptation. That's just some dude taking a shot, right? <laughs> temptation is something that you're actually like, oh, that might be, right? This could be an option here. It's actually tempting, you understand? And when Satan tempts us, he actually tempts us. But it's to you and I personally. He's smart enough to know what those things are. And your self-life, right, works itself out. And therefore, your really safe place for any of us is just found in our personal relationship with him. Because if we're satisfied in him, and we trust him, and we love him, that is the counterpart to those desires. James would put it like this. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised, notice, to them that love him. Little key there. It's preventative maintenance, right? To them that love him. You can endure temptation when you love him. When there's that relationship there. And really, the the pleasure and the power of your Christian experience is going to be directly tied to how personal your relationship with God is. And when I say that, I don't mean personal in the sense like you're an isolationist. Or some people say, like, well, my relationship with God is personal, so I don't need to go to church. It's not what I'm talking about. In fact, it's the exact opposite. What I mean by personal is there's actual direct interaction between you and him on everything, right? On everything in life, whether it's your family, whether it's your hopes, whether it's your dreams, whether it's your entertainment. The, the problem is, is that we live a general form of Christian life, though we wouldn't say this, most people wouldn't put it in these terms, we think, if I don't commit adultery and do drugs and, like, you know, drink a whole lot of alcohol and just be a jerk in general, and I kick the bucket, I live the Christian life. Right? That's, yes, wrong. (laughs) The reality is, the Christian life is much more specific than that because it's a personal relationship with a person. You understand? And what he wants from you and what he wants to have from you and what your service to him will look like is going to be very specific to your life. 
And if there is a void in those areas, the void does not last. It's just filled by worldliness. So if you're not talking about Jesus, about how you dress and present yourself, who are you talking to about that? The world. If you're not talking about Jesus, about what your entertainment is and what you watch and how you interact with those things, what are you talking to about that? The world. The enemy. There's, there's not another option. If Jesus isn't directly involved in your marriage and what that looks like and the direction your home is going, then the only thing that's left in that void is the world. The world's thoughts, the world's ideas, the world's focus, the world's perspective, the world's desires. And the less space there is for that to get in there, the less temptation you're going to be dealing with. Thomas Akempis would put it like this. The beginning of all evil temptations is inconsistency of mind and little trust in God. For as a ship without a helm is tossed to and fro with the waves, so a man who is remiss and apt to leave his purpose is in many ways tempted. Right? Do you have direct purpose between you and him? Do you have a personal Christianity? Not a general Christianity that all Christians are supposed to have. A personal Christianity. Right? Yes, the, we're all not supposed to steal. But we got to go deeper than that. Right? Yes, there are plenty of things as Christians we're all supposed to do or not supposed to do. But it's got to be more than that. I'll tell you what, a general Christian life just ain't going to cut it in the world we live in anymore. Especially in our culture. It's just not going to cut it. Your family, right? Your life. When you're taking your last breath, what do you want it to have been? The purpose. The direction. It, it should be specific. You should have something there between you and the Lord. And if you don't, walk with him. Talk with him. Search in his word. Make those decisions. It will be a saving relief and strength to you in your personal walk with him. You, you will directly recognize a new pleasure, a new power in your Christian walk when there is that personal aspect between you and him because that's what it's meant to be, right? That's what it's meant to be. It's not meant to be general. It's meant to be specific. He died for you, not just for the whole world, for you. And he wants a relationship with you. And even when you're in heaven for all eternity, your relationship with him is going to be your relationship with him. And you're just starting that now. And it should continue on, right? If there's one thing we are going to think seriously and critically about, shouldn't it be about our relationship with him and our eternity? Right? We just, otherwise, we just, you know, what are other people seeing? All right, I'll go see that. Or what's out there, you know? The worst, the worst thing that people say is, what do you listen to? Oh, whatever. What do you see the movies? Ah, oh, whatever. You, you, didn't even, you didn't even care enough to think for a second, right? Ah, oh, I just ended up in this horrible movie. What? what? You got teleported in there, right? What, wasn't there any type of communication between you and Jesus in this whole process? That's pretty serious. Right? Not just because of the act, but because of the principle behind it, because of what it says. Really important here. Here we see Christ in that personal arena, his trust, his interaction with the Father. He lives by every word of his, and that temptation is pushed out. The second arena there we see is the world, the kingdoms, right? That's the public arena. Social life. The world that you and I live in, these temptations most often come to us in the form not of our pure selfishness, but of compromise. Okay? The world and compromise is what hits us. We know that we're supposed to give, as Christ said in his answer, our worship and our service only to God. But what happens is, when compromise comes into the scene, we give our worship and our service mostly to God and partly to the world. Right? So any person that would call themselves a Christian would have to admit, yes, I know there are parts of the world that are really terrible and that we really shouldn't have anything to do with. But then most would be would less readily admit, well, 
But there are some nice parts of the world, too. There's, there's a little bit to be said for some world glory and some world beauty and some world friendship, isn't there? Now, of course, the scriptures are about as clear as you could possibly be in regards to these things. Jesus said, you're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. That's a pretty direct statement. Actually uses the word friendship. It says he that's a friend of the world. Friendship with the world is enmity against God. The, the scriptures are very clear, and, and Christians through the ages have been very clear about these things, that literally, like the lesson after the rich young ruler, more of the world, more of the worldly wealth, the harder it is to live for God. Pretty direct. Timothy, as Paul would talk to him, that the more wealth you have, the more temptations you're now faced with. Yet, here in this situation, even though the Bible constantly warns us about the deceptive charm of the world, there are always those in every generation who get pulled into that deceptive charm and who end up in a position of compromise. And what that basically ends up looking like is being transformed into the, you're having your mind transformed to the worldly thoughts and your life conformed into a worldly lifestyle. Worldliness is not the same just as wickedness, right? Straight wickedness, most people can recognize. But worldliness, it isn't just, you know, being an axe murderer or something like that. Worldliness is just not thinking about God at all. It's just going through your day and thinking about everything that a worldly person would think about. A person who doesn't have the hope of heaven, doesn't know Christ as their savior, and has no ability to worship him. And if we can move through life and constantly find ourselves in all the same levels that a worldly person who doesn't have God is on, if we can flow in all their conversations and in all their places and in all the same things they do, and there's never any type of conflict, there's a problem there. Does that make sense? There's supposed to be a conflict. We're supposed to be strangers and pilgrims. The world's supposed to think of us the same way it thought of Jesus Christ. Some people will like us and some people won't. Some people will hear our words and some people will hate us. Right? We're supposed to be in the world the same way he's in the world. And the problem is, once that compromise begins to come in, we end up being conformed to the world instead of to heaven. And even though we can still be Christian people, even though many people can still quote Jesus or Paul or John or Peter, the reality is, if they showed up, they probably wouldn't have a fun time hanging out with them for a day. Right? Because they're worldly. Our, their thoughts aren't the same. Their lifestyle isn't the same. The purpose isn't the same. The goal isn't the same. Because there's been compromise, right? That's the position it brings a person to. Christ rejected those things. He knew his worship and his service was only given to God. And really, in the end, the saddest part of that is when we love God, he loves us back. When we love the world, we have nothing. We have nothing. The world is passing. It's fading. He that does the will of God, he abides eternally. Third scenario there, the third arena that we see then is Jesus at the temple. Of course, this would be the spiritual realm. This would be the church. Uh, these temptations most often come to us in the forms of pride. Satan tempts people by causing them to exalt themselves or whether through self-justification and bitterness through wrongs and hurts. I should say very clearly, we should never be surprised to find Satan lurking about the house of God. Right? That's what that temptation there should tell you. We do happen to be his main target at this point in the world. Right? We should also not be surprised, as in that third temptation, to even see him involved in the delivery of Scripture. Right? Psalm 91, he quotes from, trying to get Jesus to act in a certain way, although he leaves out the phrase, in all thy ways. Right? He'll keep you no matter what, but he leaves out that little important phrase, which is the qualifier for the rest of the truths. And how many times through church history have we seen, and even today, Satan literally 
influencing another gospel, Paul will call it, right? How many people are deceived because of another gospel that's been put out there that's not the true gospel? How many people are their lives broken because like the Pharisees, somebody has twisted the word and put burdens on people that they themselves cannot carry, Jesus would say. Or they cause the word of God to be none effect through their tradition, right? Or, you know, people who, who are saved that have just in ignorance preached the word a certain way, and the reality is they've harmed people through that, right? Heretics, blind leaders of the blind, People have been harmed because of the way Scripture itself has been treated, and that's Satan. It's not just that individual. Yes, there's accountability. Yes, there's a part there, and we'll get to that. But the point is, that's Satan. He is in this world. He is in this arena, and he wants his influence to be worked out in that arena, wherever it can be worked out. That's why it's so important that we stay close to the Word of God. That's why it's so important that you don't trust me. You're bringing yourself. You look into the Word. You search these things. You see what God is saying. You have His Holy Spirit. If you're His sheep, you can hear His voice. Really important. But here we see this over and over again. Uh, Matthew Henry, I was speaking to my uh, wife, and she was reading about where Christ chose Judas Iscariot and made this point uh, from Matthew Henry, which I thought was great, fits in perfectly. If you listen, when talking about the list, he says, Judas Iscariot is always named last, and with that black brand upon his name, who also betrayed him, which intimates that from the first, Christ knew what a wretch he was, that he had a devil and he would prove a traitor. Yet Christ took him among the apostles, that it might not be a surprise and a discouragement to his church if at any time the vilest scandals should break out in the best societies. Such spots there have been in our feasts of charity, tares among the wheat, wolves among the sheep. But there is a day of discovery and separation coming when the hypocrites shall be unmasked and discarded. Neither the apostleship nor the rest of the apostles were ever the worst for Judas's being one of the twelve, while his wickedness was concealed and did not break out. Right? Don't be shocked. Don't be scandalized. Right? Don't let it derail you from following Christ. I think it's very important. Christ himself picked a person he knew was never his. The Bible says he was never clean. Christ directly said he never believed. So that we wouldn't be scandalized at those things. We wouldn't be shocked in this world when we see those appearing in this arena, right? When we see Satan's work right next to Christ's own work and even in the middle of this church. There will be a time of sifting where he separates the wheat from the tares. But that's up to him, not to us, right? That's up to him. Again, F.W. Borum pastor, I love his illustration, he said the church is like a telescope. When you look at it, it doesn't do much for you. When you look through it, you see what its purpose is, right? He said if you just look at the church, you'll get depressed. But when you will look through it to Christ, you see there's something greater there. And we will find Satan in these scenes. Uh, I think the danger for us is when we do, we, we can't separate his work and his wiles from the people he's working upon, right? That's what Christ, Christ was able to do that. We have the whole scene with Peter's confession, and Jesus literally says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, right? It's not because he was firing Peter. Peter, you're done. You're out, right? This is a bad one. He wasn't firing Peter. He recognized a satanic influence in Peter's life at that moment, in the words he was saying, because he didn't understand Christ's real purpose and mission. And he was telling him, not you, Lord, you'll never go to the cross. And he said, get behind me, Satan. He still loved Peter. And you know what? Satan hated Peter because Jesus would later tell Peter, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. Satan hated Peter. And you know what? In the church, we will see wrongs. We will see Satan showing up. But what we need to be able to do is separate Satan's work from the church, right? We need to recognize Satan hates this person. 
He hates the church. He hates God's plan. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. And if he had a second to do something more, he would do it. He's not just out to try to get people to make a little slip up. He is there to do the worst. When he had the leeway to get at Job and his family, what did he do? Just cause a little slip up to happen? He slaughtered everything he could. He slaughtered animals. He slaughtered people. He slaughtered his family. He did the worst he could do as quick as he could do it. And he will show up in our arena. Right? Don't be surprised. Don't be scandalized. Recognize there's a temptation there to make a wrong focus, right? To literally begin to hate the people that Satan hates. And you find yourself on his team, unfortunately. Really important for us to recognize those things. Now, 13, again in the chapter. Fortunately, it ends like this. And the devil had ended all, when he had ended all temptation, he departed from him for a season, right? In all these things, there's victory in Christ Jesus. We should recognize them. We shouldn't be ignorant of them. We should recognize the forces. We should recognize the principle. We should recognize the way that Satan comes at us. We should recognize when we're really in warfare and when we're not. How temptation might come to us, the ways that Satan might be working. We should recognize all these things, but we shouldn't fear any of them. Resist the devil, James says, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. God wants to give us victory in these arenas. We'll never be perfect, but there isn't some, uh, in a weird way, in the world that we live, there's a lot of championing of sin, right? People talk about their journeys with different types of sin, pornography or alcohol or whatever it is. They allow those things that they think are just, you know, little things to just be blown off. Oh, my temper or my attitude or the way I treat my wife, this isn't a big thing, or a lack of forgiveness here or any of this stuff, as if Christ had no concern for that temptation or he didn't die for that sin. No, God wants us to overcome those things. He wants us to have strength. He wants us to resist the devil. And have him flee from us. Sin shall not have dominion over you. He wants holiness. He wants sanctification. He wants a life like his. He's given us his Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us. We won't be perfect, but we should be moving forward, right? He doesn't expect perfection from us, but he does expect progress. He does expect growth. He does expect us to be moving forward, and he does expect us not to be ignorant of these things, and he extends his life and his strength in the middle of those things. So we're going to stand here. We're going to worship in a minute. Uh, My final encouragement is just going to be to you. If any of you are here tonight and you are personally in a place of pretty fierce temptation, maybe you feel the heat of that, in the moment, or maybe you feel even in your life you're in a particular battle and you want strength, I encourage you just at the end to come forward and let one of the pastors pray with you, right? Again, we are not, we are not confident because of our own strength. We are confident because of his strength, right? Because Christ won in all of these scenarios and exposed the devil for who he was. And he now extends his life to us. He's united himself to us. We're literally in Christ. And he wants us to be able to walk with him in the light, in fellowship with him, honoring him, pleasing him. So if that's you tonight and you need that strength, you, you know particularly in and of yourself, I'm weak. I don't even know how I could do that. Or maybe you're like, shoot, I didn't even know I was in the middle of some warfare. And I am. <laughs> And I need to, like, move forward here, you know. I need the Lord's strength. I just encourage you. That's not going to be everybody here tonight. But if it is you, I encourage you at the end, like I said, come forward for prayer. Let one of the pastors pray with you. And uh, let's, let's seek the Lord in faith to help us do the things we can't do on our own. Amen? All right, let's stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for these things in your word. 
I pray you through your spirit would be instructing us personally, Lord. You know where we need these things. You know, like I said, if they'll be down the line somewhere, we'll need to, to remember them or have you bring them to mind. And I do pray, Lord, for anybody here tonight that personally feels that press, Lord Jesus, of the enemy in their heart and their life. Uh, and they know, Lord, those consequences are greater than they can even see. I just pray, Lord, you would give them grace. You would give them strength. You would fill them with your spirit. And you would allow them to walk in righteousness and in peace and in honor to you. Lord, we, we pray you would foil any work of the enemy in this place in hearts and minds tonight. To your own glory, Lord Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Mike Foch. If you enjoyed the message, you can access more of Pastor Mike's teaching ministry by visiting ccphilly.org.